This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of our monthly podcast. This is Radar with our Nextworks team, and I'm here together this morning with the full crew. I have Pascal Coppens here, our China man. Hey, Pascal. Hi, Stephen. I have Julie here, our CEO. Morning. I have Laurence van Eelegem, who's joining us as the AI expert today. Hey, Laurence. <laughs> Good morning. And Peter Hinzen, our strategy and innovation man. Hello, Peter. Hi, guys. Nice to be here. So good to be back. Good to see all of you. I just want to start with a, with a small concept that I learned from a client this week. And it's um, a term that I will probably use in my future presentations and maybe in a future book, because I, I thought it was really catchy, but I would love to hear your thoughts on this. It's the idea in customer experience of non-negotiable rules. I love that term, non-negotiable rules. And let me share you one that I found in the research about non-negotiable rules, and it's about Disney. Why do you think that it's a non-negotiable rule of Disney that a ride in the U.S. can maximum be 199 feet tall? Like take the Tower of Terror, one of the very tall rides, it's 199 feet. Or in Animal Kingdom, you have Expedition Everest, it's 199 feet. Why do you think that is a non-negotiable rule, guys? Because if you go above that, you need to answer to different Safety regulations or something? Yes, I don't know. Yes, and more specifically, Laurence? I have no idea. And is the 199 feet, is that the height that's the of height. the attraction? Yeah, that's the height of the attraction. Uh, so it's not the length of the no. ride, it's just the, it's height, the height of the attraction. It's the height of the attraction, 199 feet. Maybe you need to answer to rules of aviation or yes. something. If you yeah, know. that's it. If, as Ooh. soon as a building is 200 feet tall, you need to have those special safety lights on top of it uh -huh. so that planes wouldn't bump into it. And for Disney, it's non-negotiable that they let others define what something in a park looks like. So as soon as they would make that Mount Everest ride 200 feet, they would have to put these red lights on top and that would look really awkward. And you would understand that there is a world outside of Disney World. So they said, we're going to keep that height max on 199 feet. I can imagine that Disney would not to want to be associated with a red light district. No, that is totally, totally <laughs> That's why that. it's a non-negotiable rule. Another non-negotiable rule is at uh, McDonald's that you never argue with customers when they say you did something wrong. So, <laughs> so imagine you went to the drive-thru and they forgot to add a cheeseburger and you call them. They will never say, take a picture of your ticket so you can prove that there was a cheeseburger there, take a picture of your order. They're like, you know, if a customer complains... We just always do what they ask. That's a non-negotiable rule at Disney. So I'm fascinated by the idea of, the, I did, not Disney, McDonald's. Actually, I saw your face changing, so <laughs> I, thank you for that help. Happy that but, we're raising the bar, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the concept of non-negotiable rules because I've seen so many companies making CX guidelines, and it's very unclear for a person in the organization what they should actually do or what the real guideline is or there are different interpretations of it. A real good non-negotiable rule is this is how we do it. We're not going to argue about it. This is something that we always implement like this and we're very, very specific about it. And I can imagine that it would be a great exercise for a lot of companies to make like, what are our five non-negotiable rules towards customers? 
And if you make those and you can really lift those in an organization, I think that could be a very interesting approach to you know, start a debate about what is our customer culture. So I was fascinated by that idea. It's easier than it sounds eh? because you call it a rule, but it's not like push button number three and then five and then 10. It's also it has to do with behavior, it is, uh, yeah. the examples that you're, you're giving. So people sort of have to be able to have that behavior and manage their emotions, etc. So um, yeah, fascinating in, in terms of how do you how do you actually make sure that that people manifest that? Mm -hmm. I think even in China, if you look at uh, the Communist Party of China, I mean, that's how they work. Yeah? They have a lot of these rules that are not negotiable. And so as long as everybody agrees to that, I think you can even run a country very efficiently. <laughs> yeah, but they, and they probably have more than five non-negotiable rules in yes. China. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. A bit more, yeah. But I'm sharing this because someone in the world is really good in making non-negotiable rules. And for the very first time, he broke his own rules. And I'm talking about our good friend, Elon Musk. I don't know if you've been following Tesla for the last month, but it was one big news fact as after the other. And, and there was a lot of good news actually for Elon Musk. Like one of the big stories was that Model Y is now the best-selling car in the world in Q1 in 2023. This is the first electrical vehicle ever that is the best-selling car in the world. Uh, there were more than 265,000 cars sold. And the runner-up is the Toyota Corolla. And the crazy thing is that the price of the Tesla Y is like twice the price of that Toyota, and it's sold in 70 countries less just to show how popular this new, this new vehicle is and how important the Tesla brand still is in this world of EVs. That was good news. The second good news that they had was a deal with Ford that they closed. Uh, Ford cars can from now on use the 12,000 Tesla superchargers that they have in North America. And, and Ford is actually the first car maker that is now starting to use the ecosystem of Tesla. And that's because Tesla changed a few things. Uh, they, they used to have a deal towards other car manufacturers that there was a license that you need to get to be able to use them. So there was like a fee involved and they changed that. So they are, they're offering this service now for free. And Ford is the first one who actually stepped into this. And, and, and this is not just a small deal because Ford is the number two uh, brand in terms of EVs in the US. So Ford and Tesla together have like two thirds of the entire EV market in the US. And they're now all using the technology and the ecosystem of Tesla to charge those cars. So there's a big chance that this is becoming the standard. So for Tesla, this could become yeah, a new step forward to create the entire ecosystem around EVs. And eventually this will probably lead to a new business model for them and the others will probably have to follow. So that was all good news. But now back to the non-negotiable rules. Elon Musk had two non-negotiable rules. The first one is you never ever do a price promotion action because he believes that price promotions are betraying your customers. He says, how can you explain it to a customer that pays the full price on day one, and then two weeks later, we sell the same product, the exact same product in the exact same way, and then cheaper. That is betraying your customers. What did he do last month? Tesla started with discounts. Between $1,300 and $5,000 on the Model 3, which you know, shows that they're more going into the price war that we discussed in previous episodes, lowering the prices, maybe linked to 
alternatives and cheaper models that will come from China. I'm sure Pascal has some, some input on that. But on the other hand, it's strange because a lot of people that you speak to, if they order a Tesla, the waiting time is like 12 months before you get a car. So their, their order book is completely filled. I'm not sure as a marketeer if it's a smart thing to work with discounts if your order book is fully filled and if the brand is still super, super popular. So that's a first rule that he broke. And the second one that he broke is the rule that he said, advertising is the price you pay for a product of a lower quality. So we will never, ever do advertising. Tesla is so great that we don't need advertising. During the shareholder meeting last month, what did our friend Elon say? We're going to start working with advertising. We're going to, and he, he positioned it really small. Right? We're going to test. We're going to do a little test and a little experiment. Let's try a little advertising is what he said. So it's interesting to look at the, the reasons why he broke those two negotiable rules. There are a number of hypotheses. Uh, hypothesis one is he acquired Twitter, which is a company that has a business model around advertising. So it's very strange if in company A, you're saying advertising is for losers, and in company B, you're trying to say, hey, advertising is super cool, especially if you do it on Twitter. So no surprise. He, he do, I think he does have the schizophrenic capabilities to pull <laughs> he that could, off. He no, could, but, he could pull that off, could. that's true. <laughs> but the first advertising will, of course, be on Twitter. Uh, and Twitter is losing customers because of his behavior, so maybe Tesla is now compensating for that, which could be a reason, but then it's not a good strategic move. Another hypothesis is that, you know, there, there used to be the big, big brand Elon Musk that everyone loved and adored. Today, that is no longer the case. Huh? There, there are lovers and haters today in the world. And now if he wants to, you know, become the mainstream car brand, you need to go beyond the tech community. Huh? So there are a lot of people who may be interested in an EV that don't follow Elon Musk and couldn't care less what he's doing. Plus, in the U.S., there's a lot of controversy around his political statements. So there are a lot of people who don't like him and are not willing to buy a Tesla anymore because of Elon Musk. And uh, those would be changed because of some advertising? Come on. No, uh, that, I, I, don't I don't believe, believe that, that either. either. But those are hypotheses that why is he stepping into advertising? Uh, his brand is eroding. He's trying it out. Um, but question mark, how, how, what, what will an ad of Tesla look like? Are they going to sell the features of the car? That this is what you see? I'd love to be in the room, Stephen, <laughs> when yeah, Elon is there, you know, and then the They're advertising the agency. agency comes in in pitches. Yeah. My God, I would, I would pay a premium amount of money just to be able to you know, see that stream. I would, I would really pay a lot of money to see that. That must be I mean, amazing. To, to, to see the advertising agencies get shot down <laughs> one by one by Elon, that would be, ah, oh, man, then, that's better than a Star Wars movie. And then right? after the meeting, he probably will say, I'm going to start my own advertising agency. <laughs> <laughs> this market is completely <laughs> ruined. Huh? There's a big opportunity here. Let's start with X agency or something like this. X agency. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he will make this first video him, himself. So it's it's going to be interesting, but it's it's strange to see that he's breaking his non-negotiable rules. He's a little bit careful with, with it. And at the same time, they're still super, super successful. So that was like a paradox that I, that I saw this month in, in his communication. And I, I couldn't tell what the impact of all this would be. It's, it's, it's a weird change of plans, if you ask me. I, I would only hope that Netflix actually has, <laughs> I mean, as they've done with Formula One, as they've done with the Tour de France, 
I would have only hoped that they would have put a, a camera crew on Elon Musk for the last 18 months and are about to unleash you know, Elon unfiltered because that would be the greatest show on it earth. I mean, imagine that. I mean, what he's gone through over the last couple of months must have been absolutely spectacular, but you can just also imagine his frustration sometimes. I mean, it's interesting about those rules, but for me, the, the weirdest moment was when Ron DeSantis you know, announced his candidacy on uh, Twitter Spaces mm-hmm. and everything just completely collapsed. <laughs> collapsed. And to think that this is a company that has prided its, uh, this is a man who's prided itself on top-notch engineering and they can't even make a video cam and, and, and a microphone <laughs> work to distribute that to what? A few hundred thousand people? It's not huge, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's crazy. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just hoping that Netflix had the insight. Well, I, I remember then when we went to Tesla and SpaceX, you always heard the same testimonies about Elon Musk, that he's very involved, that he's very yeah, smart, very demanding, that he's part of the team, that he's in the factory. I wonder how's that going now, because now he has Twitter on top of that with only 20% of the staff left. How is he spending his his time? I cannot wait actually to go back to one of those companies. I don't know if they're going to be sharing the the true story, but I I, I wonder how he is organizing his time today because, you know, those aren't small companies. Did you hear that Wall Street Journal uh, conference where he was interviewed and he said the biggest difficulty he has today is context switching? Where, yeah, I mean, the context of a Tesla is different from a SpaceX, is different from a Twitter. it's driving him nuts. So he says, I'm, I'm going to have to take context switching to a whole new level. And I think that is probably a limit that we're seeing mm-hmm. now. I think he probably could do it when it was just Tesla and SpaceX. But now with Twitter, you can see that the, the context switching has gone too far. And I think that's that's probably, he, he found a human limit in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I agree. But it's in- interesting also to see that he now has a new uh, CEO for Twitter. Mm-hmm. So... I think she will have a hard time. That must uh, be a great job now, being the CEO of Twitter. Oh, yeah, you want to sign up right away for that. <laughs> yes. Let's see how that goes. I'm, I'm really curious how she will I do think that. taking the CEO job as Twitter is like taking the head of communications under the Trump administration. <laughs> you know it was going to be hell, but you knew you were going to get a no. great book yeah. deal as a result. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal, he was also in China, our, our friend Elon, wasn't he? He was, he was. And uh, so if you want to make Elon Musk uh, shut down or not talk on Twitter, send him to China. That's the solution. (laughs) Because for a whole week, uh, Elon has not tweeted, imagine, maybe the first time for a long time, uh, because it's illegal, of course. Uh, Twitter is banned in China. And so if he would have tweeted while he was in China... Uh, with a VPN, for example, then he would have been illegal. And so this is quite interesting. Now, talking about price wars, this actually started in China, mm-hmm. uh, this non-negotiable rule that he uh, he broke. Uh, he reduced the price uh, with um, to 33,000 uh, US dollars for the Model 3. And so it was 40% lower than in the US. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened. A lot of customers in China were really angry, really upset, and uh, they took it on social media that it wasn't okay. They bought it more expensive. So the whole thing was uh, actually... Uh, started in China a long time ago. So my guess is that he learned from uh, from that and, and now extends that to the US. But I also think that um, it's crazy. I, I've never, ever in the 20 years that I've been watching technology or 20 plus years in China, I've never seen a foreign company win a price war in China. 
So this is the very first time that maybe Elon will actually win a price war. But once you get a price war with the Chinese, I guarantee you, they will strike back go under your price. And, and so this is what's happening. So all the Chinese car manufacturers, EV manufacturers, are just dumping the price. They're making almost no margins anymore just to get market share. And so I wonder in a year from now what the result will be, because usually that means the end of this company that does that. And they leave China two or three years afterwards. So it's going to be very interesting because he could be the first successful uh, price war winner of uh, of technology companies. And like the Model Y, is that selling as well in China as in the rest of yeah, the world? Yeah, then? So, That's a, it's still a popular brand in China. Then. Yeah, so of course, they, they love the Model Y uh, in China, uh, also Model 3. There's only two models that have been built in China, it's the 3 and the Y. Mm -hmm. But uh, actually 50% of all the cars of Tesla are built in one factory in Shanghai. It's uh, Last year was 770,000 Teslas that were built in China. 440,000 of them went to the Chinese and the rest went to Europe uh, because we like it as well. And so this is really, uh, I mean, China's the biggest market for Elon, uh, both from production, but also from sales point of view. Uh, so it's one of the reasons why he went to China last week. Um, and so he went there for a whole week. As I said, he was very silent, but he hasn't been there for three years because of COVID. I mean, I think asking Musk to sit quiet for three weeks in a hotel room is probably not a good idea. Uh, so that didn't work for him. So he didn't go until, I mean, since 2019. So that's a long, long time ago, he didn't go to China. But he's not the first visitor that went back uh, to China since China opened up again. I mean, pretty much every big brand went to China just to show somehow their commitment that they still want to do business with China in this geopolitical climate. I mean, you had Starbucks, Apple, uh, JP Morgan went last week as well, the CEO, uh, the chairman, sorry, and then Volkswagen, BSF, all these companies, they all went to China just to show that they're still in there. Because for many of these companies, 20, 25% of their market share is that market. And so it is important. And there's other reasons. But the big difference with Musk going to China and all the others, which are, of course, big companies and big CEOs, is that he got the red carpet when he arrived in Beijing. And Qinggang, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, invited him. That was the previous ambassador to the, in the U.S. of China before. So he met Musk as actually last year when he was still ambassador uh, in, in, in the U.S., And so that you can see pictures of them together in a Tesla. So uh, they know each other already from that. But now he was invited uh, as Ministry of Foreign Affairs, a new job he got since, uh, since last year. And so that means that um, for China, Musk is kind of a symbol for the government because he proves to all American companies, specifically American companies, that you can be successful in China and that China is beneficial for your company globally. And so he was saying really uh, things like, yeah, China will reopen and thank you, Musk, we will reopen and you will see that you will be able to do more business here. He even compared China with a car and he said, yeah, I know we had some changes last years and so on, but but a car, I mean, you have to brake and sometimes you have to accelerate and, and now we're accelerating again. And so he, he understood very much what that meant. But Musk replied, and that, of course, became a hit and viral in China, that um, it's crazy that the U.S. and China would decouple from each other or that the U.S. would decouple from China. They're intertwined. They're dependent on each other. And so he was really doing promotion, almost propaganda for, for Beijing, which, of course, this went viral and everybody loved him in China. And uh, But 
In Washington, a little bit less. Uh, Biden is clear that we need to keep an eye on Musk from now on. I mean, that's been earlier than today, but definitely now. But Musk also has been saying some really interesting things about China. For example, that he's claimed, I mean, we all know Musk is quite outspoken. He claimed that uh, the mega factory that was built in 18 months is, would be impossible in America to build this in this time and have worked as efficient as it is this today in China. So saying this, of course, doesn't help the Trump campaign or other people's campaign these days, DeSantis or whoever it will be. He also said that Taiwan is actually a very simple matter to solve. You just have to make it a special region of China and everything will be fine. Of course, that the Taiwanese <laughs> didn't like too much, neither did the U.S., but he's also, and this is also interesting, he, he was saying just before he arrived in China, he tweeted, uh, no, he didn't tweet. You know that Musk is on the Chinese Twitter, which is called Weibo. Mm -hmm. He has two million followers there. And on Weibo, when he was there, he tweeted and said that the space agency and, and aerospace of China is way more advanced than we think. And we should really be worried about understanding or know what, what, they, what they're capable of. Of course, knowing that the biggest customer of, of, of Musk, of SpaceX, NASA. is NASA, I mean, that doesn't really help his story either. So he's really constantly walking that line between the U.S., between Washington and China, which makes it extremely interesting geopolitically because both Beijing and Washington are, are looking at this one to use him to say, you see, we're nice people in Beijing, we're nice people in China, welcome to all the Americans. And then Washington saying this is, a, this is not something that we should be telling. So that was the whole story. But he went there for three main reasons. The main reason he went there is because he wants to make his factory, his gigafactory, larger. The factory now can do 1.1 million cars every year produce. They produced 770,000 last year. And he predicts if the growth continues, that next year this factory will, will not have the capacity anymore to deliver to the market. So he wants at least 50% more land to be able to build, and he needs a license for that. On top of that, he went there to, and that's quite interesting, he wants to build a mega battery factory. So this is like 10,000 mega batteries he wants to build every year, uh, large-scale energy storage. And the biggest market in the world for energy storage is China, of course, because the grid, I mean, there's peaks, you need to figure out what to do when there's downsides and upside. upside and, and, and so they, they need to know how to use these batteries in the moments that, uh, that there's too much or too little use. And so this is, a, this is where he sees a huge, huge opportunity. That's, so he's looking for licenses. And the third license he's trying to get is a license for uh, the self-driving software, his automated driving, because... Uh, China, again, is uh, advanced in terms of self-driving. You can already find these taxis in uh, many cities where they're self-driving taxis. So he's seeing opportunity. So more and more what you see is that China is becoming a test environment for the rest of the world. And, and I think that's, that's where he's looking at just trying out things, getting things done, and then, then unleashing it uh, to the rest of the world. Do you know how, how uh, Elon is, is called in Chinese? No, no, he's, he's called Ma Ilong, Ma. And, and, and Ma means horse, and Ilong means one dragon. Oh. So it's really, it's, it's kind of the Iron Man symbol that Elon Musk has in, in China. They all look up to him. Uh, this is the Iron Man in real life. And he even has a, a lookalike, a double ganger, who's actually look exactly like Elon Musk, which is a Chinese. Uh, which calls himself uh, Elon Ma, and, uh, and he's on social media, and, and he's very popular, although 
I think last month, if I'm not mistaken, he was censored on on some <laughs> on social media in China because it's not clear if they're using deepfake or not uh, to actually make that video. But uh, his English is terrible. You can watch the watch the video. But th- this is why Elon Musk went to China, and I think it's going to m- mean uh, create some dialogue and and some some interesting because you see a lot of CEOs in the U.S. already starting to wonder. Yeah, maybe we should. Uh, maybe it's a smart thing to do. Maybe it's a smart yeah. thing to do. Yeah. And the good news is he may stop a war between Taiwan and China. That's what that's we just heard. Yeah. He, yeah. That's good news. That's good news. Elon is everywhere. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Pascal, for sharing that. Let's round off our Elon Musk topic here and let's move forward to the Apple moment in the podcast. Uh, Everyone knows what we're going to talk about. Uh, Peter, I'm sure you've been following everything that happened last week when they revealed the Apple Vision Pro, uh, the long-awaited moment when Apple steps in VR and AR. What's your perspective on it? What, What did you think of the whole show that they had last week? Well, uh, first of all, is don't call it VR anymore, and don't even call it AR. It's spatial computing. Spatial. And, and I don't it, call it metaverse. Don't call it metaverse. And it was it was fascinating when you you know you saw the announcement and and the way they've packaged it. They have carefully avoided not to use anything related to virtual reality, augmented reality, or the metaverse. That is now officially old school. I mean, that is just, you know, historical drab when you think about it. They launched a new era and they call it spatial computing. And honestly, I'm very excited. I think this is the first new product category that Apple has introduced in over a decade. This is long awaited. I mean, I I think you remember, Stephen, that we were in San Francisco years ago when we were there with a number of people in a room actually hearing a presentation on virtual reality. And at that moment, we switched over to the you know, whole Apple show and they did not announce yeah, it. And everybody that. was like, oh, no. <laughs> and that was years ago. Yeah. So for years, the whole Apple fan base has been waiting, waiting, waiting. It's finally there. And I think you know, a couple of things. First of all, it's a technological marvel. I mean, this is just two, three steps above what, you know, for example, you had with the meta equipment that came out. This is something that technologically is, I think, at the right level. So Apple was, in my opinion, right to wait. And it was a long wait, but I think it was worth it. Two, it's not mainstream yet. I mean, let's be clear. First of all, there's a sticker price of $3,500, which is not, and that's more than a computer. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's more than a MacBook Pro. So this is not a cheap toy. But I do believe that it's going to enter, I think, this world into the next level. It's going to trigger a lot of developers who see the opportunities. And I honestly believe that this could be one of those things that Apple really can benefit from. I mean, if we, if you remember when the iWatch came out, people thought, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure. And now, yeah. I remember, see how many people I remember are- this, Peter. We were together at an event of, uh, we were presenting the day after at a large car manufacturer together. I don't know if you remember this. And, and you were super, super convinced about the Apple Watch that, that no one would buy it. I remember that. And you asked a question to that group, Watches, watches. Is there anyone here in this room who still wears a watch? I mean, what kind of people still wear a watch? And like all those 50 people were like, okay, uh, we still have watches here. <laughs> and I 
don't wear a watch and therefore I don't wear an Apple watch. But I think this is something that I really want to buy. This is probably a very early version, but if you see the technical elements that came into that, I mean, they developed a completely new R1 chip to be able to process all the sensors. The quality in terms of the visuals that you're going to be able to experience is absolutely mind-blowing. I was just feeling sorry when I was watching this show for all the people at Meta who were probably watching that show as well, thinking, oh, what are we going to do? I mean, this just, yeah, everything they've been working on just seems so amateuristic and mm-hmm. and so, you know, old school. And probably three days earlier, they were like, we beat them. We were earlier. Well, we beat them we were first. we got like yeah. a, a Mickey Mouse, you know, goggles <laughs> a you know, for, for $500. But yeah. this is really the next level. I mean, and I think um, if you remember when, when um, I just quickly go back to Tesla, when Tesla came out with their electric vehicle, there had been electric vehicles before Tesla. Many electric vehicles were, but they didn't work. They were always like cheap versions off. Tesla said, no, we're going to take it to the highest level. And once we figured out how that works, then we're going to scale it down. And I think that is probably what Apple's strategy is here. They've really set the bar very, very high from a technology point of view, from a user experience point of view. And, you know, it has some unique features. You don't need the controllers anymore. No, you control it with your eyes and with your gestures and with your voice. That means that you put the goggles on and that's pretty much all you need. That is a whole new level of, you know, experience that you have in that field. The quality that we're going to see in terms of visuals is spectacular. So immediately people said, oh my God, if this really is what it you know, aims to be, why the hell would you still want to go to a cinema huh, if you're going to put this on and in your living room or even in your backyard, you can have a cinematic experience where you have the best resolution, the best sound and a unique experience. I honestly believe we're going to see a breakthrough or a potential breakthrough there. I also think in terms of displays, and that was one of the weird things because I don't know about you, but I have my setup here in my Apple Chapel. I've got my MacBook. I've got two huge Apple screens that I use to control everything that I do every single day. But in the future, I might not need those screens anymore when I have the capability to say, you know what, I have 15 screens in my Apple Chapel here with all different desktops and different applications that I can manipulate. So I think it's going to have a real impact on the visualization of you know, computing going forward. But I'm, I'm really excited about the potential of developers now digging into this because I think this is, I mean, look at that. When, when you know, Vision Pro came out, it wasn't hugely moving in terms of Apple stock, but Unity, you know, the software that actually provides the platform to build games on top of this or, you know, these types of experiences, their stock went up 17% as a result of this. So I, I really believe in that capability. And I think Apple is stopping here. As you know, the day after they bought a relatively small um, startup called Mira, which, you know, one of the nice things that Mira does is they build the headsets, augmented reality headsets for the Super Nintendo uh, mm-hmm. theme parks. Yeah. Uh, so the Mario Kart Brothers um, ride is with their technology. Imagine what this is going to do also to that world where you can build experiences. And I think, you know, fundamentally, we've been talking about it for a long time. Meta completely focused on virtual reality and I don't believe that that is 
really going to pan out. I don't want, I don't want to be in an environment where I'm locked out of reality. Mm-hmm. I want to be in a world where it's an enhanced reality. And I think this is where Apple completely nailed it. So it yeah. polarizes the world. The, the, the Twitter verses has been lighting up with haters and lovers, but I'm clearly in the lovers and I want to be the first to be in line when this is available. And I'm going to do everything to bypass the fact that it's only available in the U.S. And I will be the first to buy the implants to correct my eyes to be able to use it because that's going to be another couple of hundred dollars from Zeiss, from to, Zeiss. Uh, to correct yeah. that. But I am an absolute believer. So um, a huge fan. Huge yeah, fan. Yeah, I think this I is agree. a big breakthrough. I agree. And I agree that it's like the Tesla S strategy. Yeah? This is more the Tesla S moment than the iPhone moment for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, iPhone exactly. was, was instantly mainstream. Uh, This will not be instantly mainstream. Uh, Obviously, it's too expensive. But I'm surprised that a lot of people criticize that that pricing point and think, yeah, this is a failure because it's just a bunch of rich people who will be able to buy it. It's a starting point. And from those learnings and from the developers, two years from now, there will be a 1,500 euro version. And then five years from now, there will be a, well, it will never be cheaper than 1,000 if it's Apple. But when it really works and it has all the applications and it's 1,000 euros and it adds a lot of value to your day-to-day life, many, many people will buy it. I'm I'm convinced about that. I I think what I refer to it is indeed not an iPhone moment, but I have a Lisa here. I have a few Lisas, but the Lisa one was a machine that was introduced in 1983 for a sticker price of $10,000 without the hard disk. I mean, $10,000 in 1983 was a fortune. That was an absolute fortune. But it was the first one that put it out there that allowed developers to understand how to build graphical applications using a mouse. And then, you know, the year after the Macintosh was introduced at a price of 2000 so a quarter of the sticker price of the mm-hmm. Lisa that had, you know, all the capabilities but rolled into a more compact and usable format. I think we're going to see the Lisa slash yeah, Mac evolution really soon in this yeah. space. And at that moment, I think they have an absolute killer on their hands. Yeah. I am absolutely convinced. The only point of criticism that I have is if you look to the applications that they're sharing today, there's nothing that we don't know yet. Huh? So you see examples of having a meeting online or a, a FaceTime, you know, and, and most of the things you can do today with your phone. So a lot of people are like, why would I get this crazy looking thing on my head? I can do it with my phone as well. But I'm convinced that this whole community of developers now are super, super creative with the possibilities. And now it's waiting for the applications that don't exist yet, that we can't imagine yet how that would add value in a completely different way than what we have today. And once we see that transformation where they use the technology to its full potential, then uh, to stay in moments, maybe we're going to have an Uber moment in spatial computing. Uh, The moment that Uber came out or that we had Waze, suddenly we understood why our phones are much more than just a phone. It helped us in our day-to-day life to get through the day and add a lot of value. I'm convinced that we're gonna see applications like that. I don't have a clue what they will be, but that smart creative people come up with that are fully transformational in terms of how we work, how we entertain ourselves, how we communicate with each other that will be mind-blowing. But it's, it's just a different experience. Eh? And uh, I think that's, uh, I mean, the phone or, or these goggles, I mean, they're a completely different experience. And, and this is also where I, I looked at China with the metaverse very much going into the same direction. Of course, they don't have the same thing as Apple has, but for them, it was all about extending that reality, augmenting the reality. It's not about creating new virtual worlds. And, and China has been crazy on the metaverse the last year while we 
in Europe, in America, weren't talking much about it anymore since Meta. Basically, the, the hype was, uh, was over a little bit. And, and this is really where Chinese are still building a lot of these applications. But now there's a, a new tool from Apple or a new, a new platform that they can build on top of. And I'm sure they will get the price down of Apple very quickly because the Chinese are going to start building the same thing as quickly as possible. And so this will go down fast. So I think it's, it's a great strategy and it makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah, and and to your point, Pascal, it's right. It's a completely different experience because you can you can watch an episode of The Big Bang on your phone. That works really well. But if you want to, I don't know, be in a plane and and look look at Top Gun, then you don't want to do that on your phone. You want to do that in an environment where it completely engulfs you. And I think the one thing that I I'm absolutely convinced of is those little screens in front of you in the plane are going to look so really <laughs> old school so quickly. I mean, this completely changes the entire paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm super happy as well because if you you have all read my Romy Bell future thrillers, this is exactly how Romy works with augmented reality, no crazy virtual worlds, but exactly like this. And of course, Romy also has an AI platform that is helping her every day. And Laurence, we're going to round off the Apple topic and I'm going to switch the ball to you. AI now is super hot, we all know this, and the topic of the month was AI regulation and ethics. What happened this month in that area of AI? Indeed, uh, for the past month, we saw lots of calls for AI regulation, and I think perhaps the start of that, that we first had calls for an AI stop in March, where the Future of Life Institute had an open letter calling for a pause on AI innovations for six months. But I think that since then, people have come to realize that that's not really realistic. Uh, so now everyone is talking about regulation. And I think that the first big trigger was probably mid-May. We had OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, who testified at Congress, and he said that AI could cause significant harm to the world through disinformation and emotionally manipulating humans. And he said that government regulation of AI would be quite wise. He thought that it ought to be regulated in a global manner, uh, similar to, to what we have for, for instance, nuclear weapons. After that, Sam Altman had a little freak out. He said that he was threatening to leave the EU over new AI regulations. Um, but since then, he has gone down again, uh, and he said that he will not be leaving Europe. An important nuance that he has made since this call for regulation, that he said that OpenAI is against regulating the smaller startups in the field of AI, that he wants to uh, have himself and his company regulated and the bigger companies as well. So I I think that he does not want to impede innovation uh, of the smaller players. Since then, OpenAI has uh, said several things about regulation, like they want a global authority and a global framework. They want more research into making super intelligence safe. Sam Altman has also been touring Europe for the past month, meeting with heads of states. They also, OpenAI announced a 100,000 
dollar grants, 10 of them, for building prototypes of a democratic process for steering AI. But it's not just open AI. We also saw Sundar Pichai of Google, who said that AI is too important not to regulate well. We saw Microsoft's President Brad Smith, who said that lawmakers need to ensure control of energy and of water use of AI. Um, Microsoft also outlined five principles that it thinks will help governments regulate AI. And then I think probably the most remarkable one was um, at the end of May, when several AI experts, they signed this open letter calling attention to the risk of extinction from AI. And there were some really big names that were signing that uh, open letter, like, again, Sam Altman, but also Google DeepMind CEO Demis Hassabis, also Bill Gates, Stuart Russell, really big names. And at first, when it began with, with Sam Altman, I really thought, wow, this is new. People calling for regulation about their own technology, but this big tech calling for regulation about data use and AI and crypto, it happens more than you think. Um, for instance, in 2019, Sheryl Sandberg called for government regulation. Tim Cook did the same in 2020. Mark Zuckerberg of Meta wanted a more active role for governments. Nick Clegg, also of Meta, said the same thing. Google CEO Sundar Pichai, also 2020, called for regulation. 2022, this is a really interesting one, Sam Bankman-Fried of FTX wanted uh, cryptocurrency oversight. 23, um, Brian Armstrong of Coinbase also wanted regulation of the crypto market. So if you want to see all the important names who, who called for regulation, you have to go to the Twitter thread of Scott Galloway, who put all the names in there. And I think that perhaps a really interesting one is, I saw an article in the information of Jessica Lessin, who said that she met Sam Altman in 2008 when he was 22 years old and he had just introduced a, a mobile app called Looped that was for connecting friends by showing their whereabouts. And he, at that time, sent her a very long document outlining all the privacy risks Loop had identified and how he thought that they should respond. And she said, which is really interesting, he didn't want just want to build a startup. He also wanted to write the rules. So this is not new, uh, people calling for regulation, but I think that the scale is new. And also perhaps the fact that they want global regulation. And it makes sense, obviously. It's a powerful technology. There's a lot that could go wrong. Just to give a small example, but Peter Thiel said a while ago, Peter Thiel of Palantir, the data analysis firm, that he says he has been seeing unprecedented demand for its military AI platform. So that's maybe a bit concerning. And so what are the risks? that should be regulated. And I think there's three important buckets. There's, first of all, the short-term risks. There's the old and the existing risks that will probably be magnified and accelerated by AI, like um, disinformation, like deepfakes, hate speech, all the things that are empowering bad actors, um, because this is a really powerful but also easy-to-use technology. The second one is the midterm risks, which are, I think, societal and organizational and environmental. For instance, organizational impact is that generative AI will have a significant impact on the workforce and on jobs. So we need to look into that. Social, um, there's the inequality that might rise because there will be 
a differentiator between the have and the have-nots of generative AI tools, those that have access to it and those who don't, but also those who understand how to use it and those who don't. There's also the environmental impact because the development and training of foundation models will have an increase in carbon emissions, an increase in energy use. And then obviously there's also the very long-term risk that's an existential risk for humanity if super-intelligent AI should become our competitor in a way. And that seems pure science fiction, I agree, but I think we should maybe incalculate that nonetheless because you never know. And so why are so many people calling for regulation now? Why is this happening at such scale? I think one of the reasons why they ask for regulation is that in a way, they want to deflect responsibility from them to the governments because they know that they have such a powerful tool and that things can go wrong. And if they do, they probably could say now, well, we told you so, governments. Why didn't you do anything? I think that's one. The next one is, I think, if you ask for rules and if you help shape the rules, they will probably be a little less strict maybe a little more advantageous uh, for the industry. And so that's probably why Google and Microsoft are working with governments to have these rules. And the third one is probably also about leveling the playing field. Because if you have a no-rule industry, the most ethical companies are the ones who will probably self-regulate and that will be a disadvantage. And so if you make rules, then the competition will need to comply too. And you see some of the companies already self-regulate, like Anthropic is a, a public benefit corporation by former AI employees, and they have designed their AI chatbot Claude with values that are expressed in some sort of constitution that was inspired by the Universal Charter of Human Rights. Then also Google has been wanting to develop voluntary AI pacts ahead of new AI rules together with the European Commission. And so what do I think that are will be the challenges when it comes to AI regulation? Well, first of all, a big one is alignment. Regulation should be global. So it's meant to be that there will be disagreement between the different nations. Um, also, we need an interdisciplinary collaboration for that. We need engineers and ethicists and lawmakers. And the more perspectives, well, the better the result will be, but also the more difficult alignment will be. There's also cultural differences in concepts relating to AI regulation, like privacy and transparency. They do not mean the same thing everywhere in the world. The second one of the challenges for regulation is also the black box of the systems. Because of their explainability, we don't know exactly how they work. So how could we make sure that they do no harm? Third one is transparency will also be important, but how far do we go in that? Will it be open source or not? For instance, when at an event, people asked Sam Altman if they wanted to open source. He said, well, we won't open source our solution. But on the other hand, some people are against open source because it's considered dangerous. When a few weeks ago, Meta's open source approach came out, they faced criticism from competitors who said that it could lead to misuse. And then the fourth is that a big challenge is that we will need to move from talk to action because right now there is a lot of talk. And I think that after things like greenwashing and common good washing, that we could maybe have ethical AI washing and we will really need to decide to act instead of, of talking about all these things. So that's my, my point of view. Thanks for sharing that. It's 
interesting to see. The, the only thing is I'm, I'm very skeptical about this. I, I have so many questions. I wonder all these big names, if they really mean it or if it's part of their advice of their uh, lawyers and their lobby groups. Global agreements, that would be the first time in human history that we have global agreement about something. I can't remember. Uh, we can't even decide if we're going to drive on the right or the left-hand side of the road altogether. And these things change so rapidly and no one really understands what's going on that the moment that you make regulation, it's already old school. So, so what is your P-Doom, Stephen? What is your P-Doom? I think that this will never be regulated in a way that it makes sense. For no, no, no. What is your, your P-Doom? What is P-Doom? P-Doom? You don't know no. what P-Doom is? No, I didn't huh? either. Do you guys know? Is this something that no. is, is this uh, This is, this is Peter's way to make us feel stupid. He just looked up something on the internet. I saw him type on his computer. This is the intellectual yeah, debate yeah. that you have in, in the AI circles is that when people meet each other now in, in, on the streets in San Francisco, they say, what is your P-Doom? P-Doom is your P, probability of doom. So what is Could the chance that, that I mean. AI <laughs> is going to, you know, fuck up the world and, you know, overtake us? So what is your P-Doom? Oh, it's... And, it's, and, and I go back to... It's one a percentage? Of the is the answer a percentage? Yeah. The answer <laughs> is a percentage. So if your P-Doom is zero, you think that this is all you know, bullocks and this is just PR and, and, you know, this is just a couple of tech people using now some sort of a fear mongering to actually, you know, take away from the really bad discussions that we need to have on how our data is being used. And then P doom being a hundred percent is, yeah, why don't we just give ourselves to the overlords already? So what is your P doom, Stephen? For AI? Yeah, yeah. Oh, for AI, it's 50%. For humans, it's 100%. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's the same like with every technology that comes out. Now it's AI before it was social media. There are always a whole bunch of advantages. And if we use those to its, it's max not, potential... it's not a percentage we, uh, we use of it. adoption. It's no, no, a percentage of, of that everything going the world. actually no, no, no. <laughs> screw up the world. No, no, that's, that's, uh, that, I got that. Uh, but I'm I think it's humans, it's, it's, it's humans that fuck up the world. I mean, look at social media. In theory, it's fantastic. You connect the world and the, the mission of, of Facebook was amazing. But then you have idiots like Cambridge Analytica and, and the Russians and Trump and the guys behind the Brexit that use the technology and manipulate it in a way for their own benefit, which is not the initial intention. With AI, it's already happening. I mean, you have all the deep fakes. Think about the, the deep fake of Putin last week that a lot of people thought that Ukraine invaded Russia and that they were running away from their houses and how difficult it was for the Kremlin to convince them this was a fake video, guys. This was not, this was not us. And this is just the beginning. So, But that's not AI that is creating the problem, in my opinion. It's people with bad intentions. And we need to... I, I think it's easier to make rules for people with bad intentions than to make rules for the technology that is changing so rapidly. I was absolutely mesmerized with Sam Altman's, I think, his his journey the last couple of weeks. And what he did in Congress, I think, was one of the most beautiful. It was like a master class in manipulation. <laughs> yeah, I, I have I, I was I was that. watching it. Wow, this is this is a free masterclass in how to comp I mean if you go back to Cambridge Analytica, Stephen, if you remember Zuckerberg being mm -hmm. hammered by the senators who had no idea. And this was two worlds colliding and it was an epic shit show. 
But now Sam Altman came in and he was, first of all, he was the darling of the senators. He was explaining to them how it worked and what it could do and how dangerous it was. And he was, he was buttering up these senators like crazy. And at the end, I don't know if you've actually seen it. No, but I haven't it seen is, it. It is, it is worth seeing it. And what he does is he completely butters up the senators to get them thinking, oh my God, we need to do something. And then he says, you know, senators, if you look at medication, I mean, we have the Food and Drug Administration. I mean, imagine what a world would be like if, you know, people would build drugs and make drugs and sell drugs without the FDA. That would be crazy, scary. You might need to do something very similar for this. And all the senators said, oh my God, Mr. Allman, you're right. We should have an agency to deal with this. And then one of the senators said, Mr. Altman, thank you very much for showing us the light. I mean, if we build an agency like that, Mr. Altman, would you be interested in running that agency? They were basically giving him the keys. It was a masterclass of manipulation. I mean, I have never seen something that is as beautiful to watch but it's, I think, yeah, look at, I mean, Laurence, when you talked about the Center for AI Safety, that, that one sentence that all these luminaries agreed on, the sentence was just nuts. Yeah, I mean, I it said, and I'll, I'll read it out loud, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks, such as <laughs> pandemics and nuclear war. <laughs> that is, I mean, and then to say, to make a big hoopla that, oh, some of the smartest people in the world agree to this, and it's just nuts. Honestly, I think, yeah. So my P-Doom is, is quite low, Stephen. The, I, I think this is a lot more hoopla than reality. Mm -hmm. And I think we're being yeah. manipulated in the media like crazy by these people who want to basically lock in what they have in terms of competitive advantage. It's, yeah. it's so not, my P-Doom is not 100%. My P-Doom is probably less than No, my P-Doom for, for, hu for humans, it was 100%. Well, even for society, it's less than one percent in my in my book. Yeah. You know what I what I don't understand, guys, is that uh, the whole thing about AI taking our jobs. I don't know how it is with you, but everyone that I meet, if you ask them how how is how are things going in your company, everyone is saying extremely extremely busy, and we don't find enough people to do our jobs, and we're all over the top. And what do you think of AI helping you? Ooh, I'm afraid <laughs> AI will take my job. It's like the biggest paradox in the world. We're all drowning in work. And then there's a system that may help us to be more efficient. And then we see it as the enemy. It may be the biggest opportunity we ever had to have better lives. Yeah. But I think in certain uh, domains, there is a sense of panic. I mean, to give you an idea, if you work in, in supply chain or in operations, you're not worried about this. I mean, you just think about, hey, this is really going to maybe help us you know, figure out to become more productive and to be less dependent on the labor market. And, but I don't see people worried. But I've been invited a number of times now for groups of large corporations, but people who are running legal services for huge corporations, who, who are running the more side activities. And that's where I think there is a certain amount of fear creeping in that might be more justified. But yeah, but overall, I think this is going to have a benefit. And I don't believe that robots or algorithms are going to destroy the world. I think that is just hogwash. And there are also so. companies who take wrong, advantage like of it. Watch. I could be wrong. You know? uh, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We won't have a radar anymore. But who, to, who was it? Was it, was it BT? There was a company who said by 2030, we're going to get rid of 
70% of our staff because of AI. I thought that was the dumbest thing I've read in, in years. I mean, how can you know what it will look like in 2030, first of all? I think it was just an excuse to you know, lay off a bunch of people and then it's because of AI. Who, who would say something like this today? I would even say the opposite, you know. I just returned from uh, Copenhagen on an Art of Talent tour where um, mm -hmm. the whole thing about AI was also you you get a polarity in the haves and have-nots. Who can work with AI and who who can't, you know. Uh, and that's, I, indeed, there's, there might be a panic because just like Elon Musk, it requires huge shifting behaviors from people that do things in a certain way for years and then suddenly they have to adopt new skills, new technologies to get access to the other ones. But there's no choice because if you don't, you will be less efficient, you will be less successful. And so I guess actually the ones that embrace AI will sort of need more people and have more people working in their company. So I think it's a polarity that you don't really have a choice not to work with AI. Yeah, uh, the agree. whole doom thinking, my P doom on that is exactly like Peter said, 0.0000 something. Um, so yeah. yeah. Um, in China, there's Ping'an, uh, the mm -hmm. insurance company, and they're using AI very much to monitor the agents to see how they can actually improve their uh, the efficiency of work. And the productivity has, has gone up, but also the, the agents are selling like a lot more and higher premium insurances. And the, the company's revenue has just skyrocketed with the result that more people want to join that company because they're making more money as an mm -hmm. agent. So this is an example, a counterexample, where if you use it well to monitor people, not to check on them, but actually to enhance their capabilities and talent, Uh, it's it's possible to to get more people on board and, and, and hire more people. So right. I'm pretty positive on that uh, fact. Now, just to add on the list of Laurence, uh, Elon Musk uh, went to China to talk with uh, the Communist Party chief in Shanghai about AI. I wonder what that could end up with. <laughs> But that was an interesting uh, interesting information that uh, I thought uh, Elon Musk is now going to advise the Communist Party what they should do with AI ethics. He is um, becoming the most powerful man in the world after this <laughs> podcast. We can all agree on that, I think. <laughs> And so it may become global, this regulation, yeah. because of Maybe Elon this Musk. is the solution. Maybe this is the solution that no one thought of. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, uh, Pascal. I, I want to go back to uh, Julie. You mentioned that you... We're in Copenhagen on one of our Nextworks tours, a talent tour. This was the first time that we've done a tour around this topic. What did you learn? What was your experience? Oh, yeah, it, there, I yeah, see your face it was changing. not the first it was, time. It was this, not the first time? It, oh. it was not called Art of Talent. It was Future of Work back in the days. We did it twice already uh, in San Francisco, yeah. but nobody was actually believing that it would have been needed to think about that. And, ooh, technology in the workplace, will that be a thing? In 2017, a lot of people were very skeptical on that. But, um, hey, things change, no? So yeah, we, we were there and I think I, to, the, to the first point or what we just were discussing, I think that the biggest challenge that we still have out there is really learning, making time to learn. Are we really making that a priority in companies and, and for different target groups? There's a lot to do about the war for talent and we're not finding enough people. On the other side, education is the new recruitment because otherwise we simply are not going to find enough people. But the answer on how are we going to make that shift is really not out there. We also had Frederick Ansel with us, who's uh, leading uh, or co-leading the business school at the University of New South Wales in Australia. And again, same thing, he's following global research. There's no scalable solution to really learn a lot fast enough. And so finding answers for that is definitely one we, we will still have to uh, nail down. But um, 
that was also one of the conclusions in, in Denmark. There were a lot of companies saying, hey, yeah, we have to invest in that. But on the how side, there were not a lot of answers. We visited a lot of companies and I'm happy to share maybe a few uh, few highlights with you guys and, and the related topics uh, to it, I would say. And maybe the first one is a bit unconventional because we visited a head of tax during an Art of Talent tour. And I think it's the first mm. time we even in any Nextworks trip saw a head of tax. You know, you, you think, what is this? <laughs> Why in, in the world are we listening to a tax guy? <laughs> But this is a special one. And it, it related to the whole debate of purpose. You know, if you, if you read the news, then the whole war or Art of Talent sort of indicates like you have to have have a bigger purpose otherwise you won't be able to find people because they want to make a difference in the world and that's the whole uh, thing that is out there well after Denmark I think it's a lot more nuanced than that but uh, the head of tax works at a company which is called Erstedt anyone uh, here in the room that knows Erstedt Yes, Some of nodding. Of course. What do they do, Stephen? Energy. <laughs> test. Oil? Not Energy anymore. Oil? Yeah. Ah, not anymore. Not anymore. Energy. 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 Yeah, they're the ones that completely reinvented exactly. themselves exactly. to become, you know, all green and, and yeah. that. So they could, they're the flagship, for example, of a traditional company that reinvented itself. Exactly. Aren't those the ones? Exactly. So yeah. if okay. you would go there and you say, I'm glad that I once have an answer oil. right there. It's always scary. <laughs> usually, usually I completely... I uh, don't dare to ask you any question anymore. ...give a wrong answer. So I'm glad this is more or less okay. But you were, in a way, you were right. They started with oil, but then indeed they decided this is not going to save the world. So to your point, humans are ruining the world, well, this is definitely a bunch of people at Erstedt who's not going to do that and said, hey, we're going to de-invest, just get rid of all the oil investments and we're going to go all in on wind energy. Uh, and indeed, the black to green transformation that they are pursuing is really consistent, really massive. They're really bold in their ambitions. And you could say like, hey, so this is the purpose, you know, you really want to work at that company to make sure that you are part of that. It's a lot more nuanced in, in the way that, and I, I actually compared it, Stephen, so thanks for that, with your offer you can't refuse model. You know, if you look at um, why are customers buying something from you, it's the same and why do why do people want to work for you? Yes, mm -hmm. they like the fact that they have an impact on something meaningful, but not if their basic package does not apply. I mean, if you don't have to, nowadays, if you can't work from home, that is a reason for a lot of people to just leave your company, even if you're saving the world. Secondly, being a partner in life of, uh, of your people, making sure that you understand them really translates uh, to the whole diversity needs and debates. And then maybe you can also see, hey, uh, on the frictionless part, you of course also have that it has to be pragmatic to work there. You, you want to have Mm -hmm. good equipment to work with, etc. Yeah, it's exactly the same. You can so use the model exactly perfectly the same. Just some, uh, some advertising. There's even a chapter in the book that translates the model to HR. Look at that. Oh, I model. forgot that. 10 second advertising. <laughs> subtle, cool. subtle. Let's, let's <laughs> add that to the show notes, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I think the, the one thing about purpose that you can then see is, of course, it has, it has a role. That's one thing. But the second thing is also how consistent and authentic are you in that ambition it's it just needs to be who you are as a company it just shouldn't be your marketing advertising thingy that you put on top to greenwash it you know and that's what you could see with the head of tax guy nobody um, expects that 
talent in tax is so consistent with the overall message of the company. And this is where that company really said, hey, also in tax, we have to live up to our ambitions and we have to look into how can we change the world from black to green from a tax point of view? How can we transform how we do taxes in a way that we accelerate the black to green evolution and transformation? And so as companies, we might be thinking too much in silos and thinking like, hey, this is our strategy, but without seeing, okay, what does that mean for HR? What does that mean for tax? What does that mean for all the support functions in your company? And do they also get the chance to be part of that solution of changing the world? And I think in terms of tax, that's definitely what we've seen with Karl Bellin, who's, who's the head of tax there. They actually have a huge debate with the Danish government and the UK government on how they tax these things, but they're super transparent on, hey, this is why it's, they're, they're just leading that conversation. And you never see departments like that taking the front and, and making sure that they lead that transformation. So I think in terms of companies, first of all, yes, you have to make a difference in the world. You have to mean it, but then you also have to make sure that you translate it into your full company and also hire talent that way. I'm pretty sure that they've hired and recruited Carl just to make that transformation in the tax department. And so I think in terms of art of talent or war for talent, instead of saying, hey, we don't find the right people, I think we should have a decent talent architecture uh, to see, hey, who do we have to have in what departments of a company and what do they have to achieve and how are we going to make room to let them be consistent in that. And Erstedt is, is really a great example of that. Cool. So that was Impressive. one company that was truly, truly cool. Yeah. Um, everybody was excited. A second one was Maersk. Obviously, if you go to Denmark, it's Maersk. Mm -hmm. It was the joke of the, of the trip, like, or you work at Maersk, or you have worked at Maersk, or you will one day work at Maersk. So <laughs> um, talking of impact today are moving 20% of the world's goods. So then you're like, okay, <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty yeah. cool. Uh, and they know and it. And their marketing <laughs> and uh, employer branding is really impressive. Eh? If you look to their amount of followers that they have on social media, it's insane. Yeah, it is. Company moving containers. Huh? We saw their head of employer branding. Um, so the yeah. guy's doing a great job, I guess. He also in business for one year. So I'm not sure, like, was it his <laughs> achievement or will we see other yeah. things? There's also a lot of debate about Maersk, you know, that it's all like Erstedt that was really authentic, while Maersk, there's a lot of opinions that say, hey, yeah, this is just branding and this is not really how it is on the inside. Um, I think that the experience there was mixed. Obviously, the impact that they can have is huge. I think the most interesting thing that was triggered with that visit is uh, is technology and tracking in HR. Like we all know the engagement surveys and how we ask everyone, how are you doing? And then how are we doing in terms of employer uh, branding and, and do people like to work here? Times have shifted now with AI and data all in abundance. And nobody's actually talking about that, of course, because it sounds scary that your employer is doing things with your data. But at Maersk, it was obvious that they're talking to the big guys, that they're having a huge partnership with Microsoft on, hey, how are we building new technology to organize a huge company like that that is active globally um, to work with that? So I'm thrilled to follow that scene on how data and AI is going to going to move forward on the HR side and make things more efficient. Not there yet, uh, not a lot of stories yet, but I think definitely one to watch for us in the coming year as well. And third one is a buzzword we all know is psychological safety. That was the topic at Nova Nordisk. <laughs> Talking about Maersk, uh, we arrived at Nova Nordisk and then they start with the, yeah, if you want to have an idea of our size, we're like 
20 times the size of Maersk, Erstedt, like basically all the companies you've seen. So you're like, woo. Isn't it the most valuable European company? Uh, I don't dare to confirm that, but yeah, it's likely. They're huge. That's obvious. And they know it and they're very like old school, but subtle about it. That's, that's sort of what you have with the Danish. Like they're humble, but at the same time, they're telling you how awesome they are and that they're like just rule the world. That's a really cool feeling cool. that you yeah, get. That's cool. On psychological safety, I think it was interesting to acknowledge like this is just a new word and nobody actually knows what they're talking about. You know, every presentation that you go in, it's like, yeah, you have to be safe to say what you want. We actually saw a lot of companies and every every single company had a different uh, definition. What What is psychological safety in our company? So that is an absurd, I would say, uh, observation to, hey, what are we actually talking about and are we measuring that already? So just a simple fact, like if we want to be real about this, how can we understand the same thing? How can we link KPIs or behavior or unnegotiable rules to it, like you said in the beginning, Stephen, mm -hmm. and then maybe see how can we improve it? So I think... All of that to say that a lot of things in, in talent and HR are just only in the beginning. I think there are huge opportunities if you look at this, uh, this experience to HR really stepping up, just like Tax did in, in Erstedt, for example, that HR can really think about what is our day after tomorrow? How can we make sure that from our people that we just build that house better, that we do that talent architecture better, that we're bolder in what we want to do? And HR is simply, I think, too humble in a lot of companies and not stepping up to the forefront. <coughs> a second learning is experiment. Um, they're busy with a lot of processes and L&D and it's just like you would say that a user journey and an employee journey is one journey, just like we have in marketing as well. There's no one customer journey, there are multiple journeys. So how are we organizing more flexible with a more variety and diversity in HR will also allow people to achieve greater things. And the third one is indeed tell the story. That was the difference with, for example, Erstedt and Maersk. Erstedt was really clear and there were a lot of hard things in that, like things that don't work, hard moments, difficult conversations, but at least they're clear on who they are. And if you want to work there and you want to be part of that, you should. For example, one of the things is, yeah, we're super non-diverse. We have 70% is white male uh, and we want to change that. That's difficult. But honestly, if you if you're um, if we're recruiting people and uh, the woman is a, is a better candidate, we'll definitely choose the woman. I mean, those are statements that also have a lot of controversy related to it, but at least it's transparent and you can have an opinion on it and, and you can go ahead. So third one, as a company, it's not about, hey, hey, it's, it's nice to work here, but also be clear and consistent on how are you doing it? How are you living it? And also in, in just your teams, making sure that you do so is super important. So day after tomorrow of HR, experimentation in HR and tell the story and make sure your narrative is stellar is I think three things that we definitely took away from the trip. Yeah, super interesting. I, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to work on HR. We still see this, that HR is often way too operational and not involved in building the culture and, and understanding the impact on the brand. So I think it's great that you took um, the HR community to, to these wonderful companies. So thanks for, thanks for sharing that, Julie. Yeah, and if listeners have suggestions on other locations in the world where things are really interesting and how they're organized uh, in terms of culture, etc., we're always open to suggestions because we're going to go uh, do another one next year. So um, let us know where we should go. Cool. Yeah, let us know where <coughs> we need to go. 
have an Pascal, idea. Pascal has an idea. <laughs> no. I have, I have, I have a, a title for the new uh, tour to China. The Art of War of Talent. <laughs> the Art of the War art of, of Talent. War I like talent. that. Yeah. I, I what like do you think that. about that? <laughs> yeah, we'll, I'm intrigued. We'll take, we'll, yeah. <laughs> just came up with that just now because yeah, I think brilliant. Sansa, uh, right? It sounds really brilliant. psychologically safe, War <laughs> and HR. <Thank> <laughs> <laughs> but we don't know what it is thank yet. You. So I mean, now no, is no, the no. time. Now is the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so thank you, Julie and uh, Pascal. Those are wonderful insights and a cool new idea for a, a new tour. And by the way, while we're talking about new tours, Peter and me have a new uh, plan that we've been working on for a long time. Um, we relaunched our Never Normal Masterclass. It's not really relaunched, but about eight years ago, Peter and me did a leadership program for executives to take them into the day after tomorrow it was done and we took two full days with a group of 30 40 people to really dive into the details and and we're doing this again now we're going to do this in november we called it the never normal masterclass and it's a full day peter it's a full day me we're going to talk about innovation the topics that we discuss here in radar of course customer experience and we're going to let people work to make sure that they go home with concrete ideas to work on their never normal so i just wanted to Pitch that in here for listeners who would be interested in... Excited to do this, Stephen. Oh. Yeah, me too. And uh, it, it, last time it was amazing. It's cool that we're doing this together. And um, if people would like to join, just react to one of our posts or send us a message. And we would love to welcome you in Ghent in Belgium somewhere in November, 20th and 21st in November. So I'm very excited about this. Peter, you told me you wanted to talk about the crackdown of the SEC on Binance and Coinbase. Yeah, so I think this is something which... Web3, do you remember Web3? Do you remember hardly, something about this? Hardly, huh? hardly. <laughs> so, um, yeah, not, not too long ago, everybody was so excited about blockchain and, and about cryptocurrencies, and, and I'm a huge fan still. I mean, I fundamentally believe there is something of real value there. But if you look at that world of crypto, it has been a pretty disastrous last 24 months. I mean, the last two years, we've seen an enormous decline in the value of a lot of the cryptos. Let's be honest, we've had a number of spectacular collapses, FTX being probably the most prominent one. Mm -hmm. But lately, what you have seen is, and we've talked about regulation earlier on the show, regulation is now hitting that world really, really hard because many of the traditional regulators say, you know what? Crypto isn't special. We should regulate this in the same way that we regulate normal securities. And that is now something which is coming to a showdown in the US in basically the Securities and Exchange Commission. So the Securities and Exchange Commission has been around for a long time in the US to regulate the stock market, uh, to regulate the bonds, to regulate financial instruments. And the whole debate that is now happening is that you have the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission, Gary Gensler, who is a, you know, a really powerful figure because he is the one who is actually controlling the stock exchanges and controlling how publicly listed companies behave. He is now basically saying that everything that is crypto should be handled in very much the same way. It should be handled as a security. So this is now something where he's been on a crusade for quite a long time. And Gary Gensler is an interesting figure. He comes out of the world of finance, then taught cryptocurrencies at MIT, then became the head of the Securities and Exchange Commission. But he picked a fight, and he picked a fight a while ago with Ripple. And I don't know if you remember Ripple, but Ripple yeah, we've was... Been there. 
uh, a cryptocurrency that was a blockchain-based concept, not entirely blockchain, not entirely crypto, but it was basically a mechanism to do international financial transactions. Mm -hmm. Ripple had something that was the equivalent of SWIFT, where SWIFT is organized by the banks. Ripple is something that promised to do international bank transfers at a much lower cost. And Gary Gensler picked a fight with Ripple. And he basically said, you know what? You are a security, so you need to be regulated as such. And Ripple said, no way. This is now a lawsuit that has been going on for months. We're hoping that this is going to come to a culmination and it's probably going to, I think, be a landmark issue because it will decide whether crypto is a security or not. But the biggest exchanges out there are going to suffer as a result of that. And in a precursor to the outcome of that debate and that lawsuit, Gary Gensler has now done two things. First of all, it said Coinbase, which is the largest U.S. crypto exchange, has been now under scrutiny by the SEC, gotten some fines, and this is now turning into a huge fight between Coinbase and the SEC, where Coinbase always said, hey, we're the good guys here. We're trying to do as much as we can to regulate or help regulate this industry. We're on U.S. soil. We want to follow all the rules, but give us a bone here. I mean, help us to build this industry. And we've seen, of course, the collapse of FTX, which was a, a basic crypto exchange that was in the Bahamas, that was not under any legislation. They were trying to do everything you know, to get away from that. And Coinbase says, why? Why are you picking a fight with us? Now, this was the day after the SEC attacked Binance, and Binance is now the biggest crypto exchange in the world. And Binance is, you know, run by a very special guy, CZ, that has always been out there and really flew. I mean, we don't know where they are. We don't know where they're headquartered. They're like a, a very mystic thing, but they are the largest crypto exchange in the world. And it's really fascinating now where Gary Gensler has fewer and fewer friends left every single day. Yeah? Because everybody said, you guys made a complete mistake when you didn't regulate FTX early enough. You let it collapse. Now it's going after Binance, which you know, might be something that you, know, you have to look at because Binance is a strange thing. But now you're going after Coinbase, you're basically out to completely destroy the entire world of crypto. So long story short, it's a fascinating environment at this moment. Crypto is under a lot of stress. If you look at Coinbase, their valuation has gone from $100 billion to $12 billion. I mean, they lost 85% of their value as a result of this complexity. Mm -hmm. And it really shows that we need to figure out a way that we need to regulate. I, I absolutely believe we're doing that in Europe, but we also need to make sure that we don't completely destroy this entire beautiful world of crypto and blockchain. Mm -hmm. But it's something worth watching, and we're going to see a number of really interesting outcomes, especially the Ripple lawsuit, very, very soon. Okay. And, and the interesting thing is what you said also in the beginning, that you're still a believer of the underlying I technology. Am. I'm a fundamental uh, believer. Uh, blockchain. Yeah. And, and I think, Pascal, to switch back to you, Sure. Um, China is opening a national blockchain center and Hong Kong crypto exchanges. So is that is, is the, the mindset different? Do you feel the same kind of negativity in China or, or what is it like? Oh, not at all. Just the opposite. So actually, China is going to save crypto. I mean, that sounds like very strange, <laughs> but, but the reality and is... And is that, Elon Musk involved? That is the thing we all want to know. Not that I know, but yeah, you never okay. know, of course. Uh, but China uh, has done something quite interesting the last um, weeks. 
uh, in the month of May, they actually put um, a new blockchain center in Beijing. Uh, it's a national blockchain technology innovation center where they're planning to train 500,000 specialists on distributed ledger technology. Wow. And so this is a huge push that they're putting into blockchain now. But at the same time, like you were saying, and, and that's interesting with the story of Peter, is that they are now uh, letting trading of crypto becoming legal in Hong Kong. Let's not forget Hong Kong is still part of China. Uh, and so that means that we've all been talking about Hong Kong being more controlled and having less freedom. Suddenly, it turns out that it's legal to now set up these uh, exchanges of crypto in Hong Kong. There's two that got licensed already. And uh, what it also means is that everybody who doesn't have a license suddenly can't operate anymore because they will be looked after or they will be checked very much. And so you see a complete opposite direction as what we have, we're seeing in the US, where now China sees an opportunity to use crypto in Hong Kong, in my view, as a kind of sandbox to see if it works, because it could get a lot of liquidity into the Chinese economy, which uh, is quite needed at this moment. And so maybe people will trust the Chinese or the Hong Kong uh, crypto exchanges more than the ones from, from the US simply because of all the scrutiny they're having uh, from the SEC. Mm -hmm. And so China's jumping on that opportunity. And this is, this is weird because China had banned cryptocurrency. They, they don't trust it, but they love the technology of blockchain because it makes everything much more transparent in a way to authenticate. And let's not forget, China has the name of not being trustworthy and a lot of fake products. And so they have a lot of problems with that. Blockchain is a solution for that. And so they're, they're really doubling down. They've even given a, written a, a white paper on it, which is really saying we're going to push blockchain to the limits for companies and, and, and the government to implement it. They have a blockchain service network. I mean, everything's going into the direction of blockchain and crypto in Hong Kong is getting tested to see if it could work, of course, with regulation. And so China might be regulating it before the US is, uh, but it might actually attract a lot of investors to go to China to trade on crypto. And so my prediction is that this will even go into Shenzhen maybe, and maybe even into China, but with very strong regulation, and that China might have just waited a couple of years and say, let these America do crazy things, uh, we'll see what goes wrong, and then we'll figure it out how to do it right. And in the meantime, we'll work on that regulation and get it right the first time. So this is really the opposite direction as we see in the US and geopolitically very interesting. And a potential new tour to look at the future of blockchain in Hong Kong and Shenzhen. That, that sounds like a great opportunity. Definitely. Consider it done. <laughs> <laughs> Laurence, you have the final word about Silicon Valley that is reviving the dream of general-purpose humanoid robots. Tell us everything there is to know about that, Laurel. <laughs> but I don't know about everything, but I will try to, to give a, a little list of what happened this month um, because there were several okay. announcements um, in the area, and obviously it makes sense because we have disembodied artificial intelligence, which has been evolving like crazy. So the embodied form of robots will probably also profit from that. I want to, to start first by saying, I don't know who was the first in these announcements of robots. I think it may have been Tesla, but I can just guess that all the PR departments of all the other companies were something like, dude, we also have to announce something now because you will maybe see that not all the announcements were as super impressive. Um, but first, Tesla and the Optimus. 
I don't know if you remember uh, that we all laughed with the Tesla bot presentation in September 2021, which included. I remember how Peter <laughs> described yes. that. As, yes, uh, the weird Elon Musk overpromising <laughs> super act or yes. something was the quote he used. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this was this weird dancing robot terrible. impersonator with wearing spandex. I remember Peter <laughs> talking a lot about the spandex uh, of that guy, mm -hmm. um, but. <laughs> But yes, since then, um, a lot has changed, I think. He showed a video during a Tesla shareholder meeting event, which showed the improvements. And we saw a fleet of robots walking around very slowly, maybe a bit wobbly, a bit like slightly drunk senior citizens. And they were picking up and putting down items. They were also recognizing objects, uh, seeing and memorizing their environment. So it was perhaps not super impressive, uh, certainly if you compare it with Boston Dynamics Atlas. But we are still a very long way from Spandex Guy from 2021. So that's impressive. Also, what I thought was really interesting is that Musk was very confident that uh, the majority of Tesla's long-term value will be from Optimus. Uh, that's what he believes. So the second one announcement came from Aptronic um, and the Apollo uh, robots, which is a collaboration between Aptronic and NASA, which they announced in February of this year already. But this month, they announced that they will unveil a general-purpose robot this summer and that they will also be exploring a Series A funding round following the unveiling. So basically what they did was they announced that they will announce something this summer. So you see, that was what I was talking about with the panicking PR departments. But what's interesting with this announcement is that they do not have one robot. They are working on two different halves. So first they have the Astra, which is an upper body designed to be mounted on another robot. And then they have the Draco, which is a set of robot legs. Then also we had an announcement from Sanctuary. They announced that they will have a new Phoenix robot. And interesting is that it was founded in 2018 by Jody Rose, who perhaps you may also know uh, because he founded quantum computing company D-Wave. Um, interesting about uh, the sanctuary approach is that they will go uh, in an incremental phase approach with first better teleoperated robots, then gradually automate, but still with a human operate, and they want to, to go to fully autonomous uh, at the end of the road. Amazon also announced something which was Project Burnham, but I will not go further into that because that's not actually a humanoid uh, robot, but also it was about a robot. Then we had Figure, which had the Figure 01 robot, they emerged as a company back in March. Uh, they emerged from stealth. They have a super impressive team made of people from Boston Dynamic, Tesla, uh, and also with Apple veterans. And the past month, they uh, announced that they will raise uh, $17 million in a first external round from investors. But besides that, not much is known. Just, I want to add a little funny anecdote. They had this demo uh, where they were showing off the dexterity of the, the hand of the robot and the wiggling of the fingers. And <laughs> the robot apparently had the tendency to keep flipping off people during the demo. So that could be a sign that maybe the robots are waking up, but just saying. And then this is also a really interesting one, uh, the last one I'm going to talk about, um, about 1X uh, and the Neo robots. The interesting thing about that is that at the end of March, OpenAI said that they were 
they would be investing 23.5 million in this company. And now that company is preparing to unveil a bipedal robot called Neo, which I have to say looks suspiciously like a dude in a spandex suit on their website. Um, but they do have a robot called Eve, uh, which is already operational as a security guard in, in Europe and the US. Uh, and so I think that together with the Tesla announcement, this collaboration of OpenAI and the Neo robot company is perhaps the most promising news. I'm still waiting for a Google DeepMind and Boston Dynamics collaboration that had not happened yet, but that could be exciting as well. And so that's most of the list of robot announcements of this month. And why is this suddenly so popular? Well, I think the main reason is that we are struggling worldwide with an aging population and a workforce um, and a growing difficulty in finding employees. According to the World Health Organization, by 2050, the world's population of people over 60 will double compared to now to 2.1 billion. And we already see nations that have a real labor shortage like in Australia, apparently, one-third of businesses have really difficulty finding staff, so that could be interesting. And so maybe to end with the challenges, obviously, it's very hard to make a humanoid robot. It's probably even harder to make it general purpose instead of specialized. And at this point, I think that most of the announcements were marketing and PR to get more funding. We are still far away of a real robot co-worker or companion, but who knows? Uh, we have seen that things are moving super fast with AI software, so maybe robot hardware may take the same leap. And just another challenge, I think, of building robots is a bit of the same challenge as we have with uh, electric vehicles. Um, first of all, there's the precious metals for batteries and hardware and chips which are limited and hard to find. Just a striking news, I thought, in March, Tesla said that they want to eliminate the use of rare earths in their next generation EV. So people are really aware of that problem and, and looking for solutions. And we're also probably looking at a chips shortage in the coming years because we will need a lot of them for AR, for VR, um, for large language models, for EVs, for robots. There's also the chip war between the US and China. And then the last thing, the impact on the environment, because manufacturing robots and batteries produces emissions. You need a lot of energy that also has an impact on the environment. Also, the mining of the raw precious materials for batteries, like cobalt and lithium, is polluting and water-intensive, often under suboptimal labor conditions. So we are not there yet when it comes to building functional and ethically built robots, but people are indeed heavily investing in it. And I just want to end, and this is the last thing, with this famous advert. I don't know if you saw it from a Belgian ad agency, Impact, that went completely viral. Perhaps you saw it. I it's, saw it, yeah. It's a, it. yeah, the, the banner on the building that said, hey, yeah. ChatGPT, finish this building, which was pretty brilliant mm -hmm. and, and well done of them. But when I saw it and everybody sharing it like, ha stupid ChatGPT, you can't finish a building, then I thought, yeah, just maybe give it a few years and ChatGPT will be able to finish the building with a robotic interface or, or 3D printing or something. So maybe we should not laugh so hard. Um, <laughs> but aside of that, obviously, that was a brilliant campaign. Did you see the video on uh, Twitter that people made with uh, the advertising on top and then underneath it, a video of the uh, Atlas robots of Boston Dynamics that ah, were no, actually building no. a building. I didn't yeah. see that. Yeah, yeah. That, one, that one also went viral, <laughs> yes. yeah.
Maybe just uh, also acknowledging what you said on the War of Nations uh, for talent. Um, it's exactly the same we saw in Denmark this week as well. They have a 2.6 unemployment rate, which is extremely low. And basically the, the people that are in those 2.6% are people that are between jobs. It's also the wow. country where people shift jobs fastest than in any other country in, uh, in Europe. It's huge. They actually even removed a holiday for everybody just to keep up with all the work that should be done. Uh, literally, this, it's no joke. It's real. They removed they the holiday. Removed a f- Imagine that someone would suggest that yeah, in Belgium. That, voilà. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> if you have to choose between let's accept the robots and develop them or you have to give up your holiday, it's up to you guys what you think that will be. Um, another thing you might not really like is they're increasing, and they wouldn't like it in France either, they're increasing the pension age to 75 even. Not immediately, but gradually. They're like being talks like people that wow. are born in 2010 might need to work until 75. Nation's not happy about it, a lot of debate, but just to say how how hard the problem is and uh, that we really should figure out how can we learn to build that technology that can help us out there. Yeah, pension age for robots, that would be interesting. Pension age for robots, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, to, to add on that, Laurence, on the rare earths, again to Musk, this was one of his discussions with CATL in China, so the biggest battery producer in the world. CATL is is working and BOID as well on these uh, sodium ion batteries, which is not as difficult to actually uh, get at mine. And so there's a huge push from Musk uh, as well to to work with China uh, on actually trying to find a a solution about that because there is a limitation. Mm -hmm. Thank you, guys. I suggest we round off this uh, radar episode. We can call it the Elon Musk special almost. (laughs) He was all over the, the place. Thank you for all your insights, for sharing it. Thanks, Pascal. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Laurence. Thanks, Peter. Very cool to have you on the show here today. We're going to take a little summer break with Radar. So our next episode will be live in September. So thank you for listening, and we wish you a wonderful summer. Bye-bye. Take care. Enjoy summer. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website, nextworks.com, to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.